Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard, as usual, across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network as we provide our monthly COVID pandemic update with vaccinologist and epidemiologist John Gravenstein and infectious disease public health doctor Paul Carson. And we're going to try to focus on good news related to the pandemic because there's so much focus now on how various vaccines and case numbers aren't perfect. They're good, but they're, they're not perfect. And, and so often, some of the media seem to miss the vast amounts of good news. John and Paul are going to help us see that good news. Too bad George and Ringo won't also be here to complete the force. <laughs> I was going to say Cosmos and Damien, but that's just a different list. <laughs> different list, yes. Well, that, that is no, true in the list of martyrs. Well done, Catholic Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we, we launch into to all good news related to COVID, I wanted to put in a little plug for a little book that a friend of mine wrote, uh, Tom McGovern. He wrote a really interesting book about Christ's passion, What Christ Suffered. And it's available on Amazon, and I'd encourage anybody who has not read it to read it. You want to be educated about what Christ suffered, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. The famous radio host, Al Kresta, has said that Dr. McGovern scoured the literature, and I can attest to that. And he described it as a perfect blend of faith, science, apologetics, and spirituality. And uh, you, you might not be able to trust us lay folks. So from Archbishop Sample, he said that this book will inspire your faith. So for people who are still looking for something to do in Lent, it is not too late. I would get a copy and it will be a quick read and you'll, I think you'll find it enlightening. It was something that I have found enlightening, learning about a lot of things related to the passion that I misunderstood or really took for granted things you see in the movies that were not really reality regarding Christ's passion and crucifixion. So Tom, well done on that. And, uh, I'd encourage folks also to tune in on EWTN, right? Because you're going to be on EWTN television. I'm actually going to fly down to Birmingham the last day of the month, March 31st, and be on with Father Mitch Paco on EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So I've never been down there. I can't wait to see the place. This is the time of year to go south, I think. Uh, Fort Wayne is just starting to warm up, but down there, you're going to want to bring some uh, short sleeve shirts, I think. Don't you know? I will. And then <laughs> Thursday of Easter week, not Holy Week, Thursday of Easter week, I'll be at Benedictine College uh, participating in a conference for pre-med students. And uh, the night before the conference, which starts on Friday, I'll be speaking about the contents of my book, What, what Christ Suffered the students and faculty there, but we have a bonus. We're going to actually do something called YouTube Live, which I have not been part of, but there's a link for it that anybody can get, and we're going to ask our good producer, Andrea, to put that both in the podcast notes and also uh, on our website, drdoctor.org. We're going to ask her to put on there the link so that you can uh, watch me live if you'd like to uh, talk about some of my favorite aspects of that book on uh, Thursday, April 8th, 7 p.m. Central, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So that'll be a good Lent fix and uh, Easter after that fix. And now we are the, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we might be the only people talking about good news related to COVID. I've not heard any from any other source. So you are hearing it here first. There is good news and we want to spread it. Before we get to the guest interviews, though, we wanted to do our medical trivia question. And Tom has prepared something very special for you today. Yes, something related to the COVID pandemic. Uh, There was an analysis published uh, in the medical literature March 2nd. Actually, it was at the meeting of the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology. And it was a report on whether or not asthma is a risk factor for COVID hospitalization for being on a ventilator or or for death. And we've heard multiple different things about asthma and COVID. So what do you think this uh, large study showed? There were 562 asthma patients with COVID compared to 2,600 COVID patients without it who didn't have it. So my question is, is asthma, according to this study, a risk factor for a worse outcome uh, with COVID or not? You'll have to stay until the end of the show after we have a a rousing discussion with our two guests here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our special guest experts who you've heard before. 
Dr. John Grabenstein, PhD, a vaccinologist, epidemiologist, pharmacist, and Dr. Paul Carson, our favorite Northern infectious disease and public health specialist from the good state of North Dakota, don't you know? So number one, under categories for good things going on, the numbers are dropping like a rock. So it's been one year. The pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization on March 11th, 2020. So let's start with the most vulnerable who have been dying from COVID, nursing home residents. In the U.S., they've accounted for somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the deaths in the United States during this pandemic. Paul, how are the numbers now looking for nursing home residents since we started vaccinating in mid-December? You know, things are in a much, much better place uh, now. And uh, as you know, I'm a medical director of a nursing home in um, my state, uh, and I think this is true of uh, most other places, we're seeing very high acceptance of the vaccine amongst nursing home residents. We're typically in the high 80s to 90 plus percent range of acceptance in, in residents. Staff is a little different story. We've got probably on average about 55% of our staff uh, immunized, um, although a lot of them have been infected in the past. But we now have not had any cases in the nursing home I work with in weeks and weeks, uh, including uh, amongst our staff, um, we're, we're seeing just a much, much better uh, place here with now talk about how we get people visiting again, how we have communal dining again, how we start to open up. So, Paul, I read in one site, and I could not find it again, that the deaths in nursing homes for the last months have accounted for only about 20% of COVID deaths instead of closer to 40% of COVID deaths. Have you seen that? data? Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, I hadn't yeah. seen that um, myself. That doesn't surprise me since we've been so intensively monitoring um, for uh, for the virus in nursing homes for quite a while now. And then that was the first place to, you know, get vaccinated. They were among the first, you know, 1A group to get vaccinated. Right. So, John, what do you think about what's going on in nursing homes? Uh, so uh, what the, the numbers I saw was that the, the share of deaths is a uh, the, the share that is nursing home residents is much smaller but that means the deaths are elsewhere so yes it's falling like a rock i'm going to be the the pessimist here or the gla glass um somewhat empty person that we have fallen to the peak of last summer so the numbers are better for nursing homes as percentage and as absolute numbers. But as John pointed out, the numbers are still coming down to where they were near the peak of the summer, which looked like a big peak back then, looks like a small peak compared to where we've just been. Uh, Paul, back to nursing homes. What does it mean for our ability to visit family members we may have in nursing homes? What do you think will change and at what point? So we're still somewhat <clears throat> limited in, in uh, nursing homes because they are regulated by CMS. You know, this is sort of Medicare, Medicaid services, and they set out uh, regulations on visitation, on uh, testing, and so on. And they haven't really updated any of their guidance since we've been um, vaccinating. However, with, within the latitude of what we are able, we are now having people go go in and, and if they're vaccinated, we're allowing them communal dining, for example. We are allowing uh, family to visit. They still have to mask. I think it will be, you know, a short hop with the recent CDC guidance that came out about, you know, everybody being masked or I'm, I'm sorry, everybody being vaccinated can maybe start to gather unmasked. You know, I would hope to see that uh, when you have vaccinated family members. Uh, being able to visit and hug their loved ones without a mask on in the near future. We're not there yet, but I think we, ought, we got, got to be getting pretty close. What do we need to see so that that's allowed? For instance, you know, in my father's nursing home, um, if I go to visit him indoors, I still have to be six foot masked, even though he's fully vaccinated and I'm fully vaccinated. What will have to change before the rules will change? Yeah, I you know it's CMS. I think catching up with uh, with where we're at. I mean, it's very slow and reluctant to change. But I think um, in my mind, if you've got that sort of uh, scenario, you're you're vaccinated. Your loved one in the nursing home is vaccinated. We really should be allowing them to uh, do most anything. Um, uh, so we need the regulatory groups to catch up. I was excited to see that new 
new guidance from the CDC because there's been a lot of people who ask me, you know, why even get vaccinated if I'm going to be doing the same things? Now, obviously, there's many good reasons, but, you know, looking at kind of the broader picture, these cases are dropping faster than we anticipated, um, presumably because largely due to the vaccine and how many people are getting vaccinated. How good is this news and how, how fast are these cases dropping compared to what a lot of people thought it was going to take much longer to see this kind of response. We had the peak in large part because of the holidays. People are back to uh, their normal pattern. They've been back to their normal pattern for a couple of months. I think there's I think there's multiple reasons. It's there 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 could be some seasonality. People are getting out in the fresh air a little more. The weather's getting a little better. My um, uh, mantra right now is it's better, but it's not over. But why are the numbers, because the numbers even started dropping before vaccines could even have had much of an effect. So do you think it's mainly because it's not the holidays or do you think there's a lot of different things involved, John? A, l- a lot of things, you know, the, 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 the holidays bring people together who, you know, bring house, you know, multiple households into the same living room or under the tree or whatever. Um, and so that, you know, we, people are back to where they started from and, uh, we've had a chance for that spike in cases to work its way through the system. Um, you know, people were, were, you know, have been masking and and going back to their, to their good patterns. And that's all for the, that's all for the good. Now, how could seasonality be part of it when even the Southern hemisphere with the exception of Brazil seems to be having a drop in cases, and it's the opposite season there. Yeah, so seasonality is a minor player here. This is a multifactorial. Okay. It's the mixing. It's the distance. It's, you know, it's the, you know, seasonality. Partially, it's about being indoors and in, in, in humidity issues. Uh, but, you know, it's it, seasonality is not top of my list. It's, you know, when I'm getting down into the fourth and the fifth one. And, and you know, we have had some... Um, uh, you know, we, a piece of this is the success of the vaccine. That that's clearest, I think, in the in the drops in the nursing home deaths, because that you know those are such people have such limited mobility um, that that uh, that's going to help the, the the fact that the healthcare workers are vaccinated as a as a nexus uh, to stopping the the infection, you know, stopping the spread. That was you know intentional that the healthcare workers would go very early. And, uh, you know, all of, you know, it's a, it's a multifactorial thing all combined. Paul, I guess I've got a follow up to that. Um, anecdotally, we do a lot of COVID care in our practice. Uh, if people have symptoms, they perceive themselves as sick, they call to be evaluated. We've been testing people who fit those categories. And I'm going to say November, December, Pretty much everybody who we tested had COVID. Uh, we tested some people for influenza if they were COVID negative, didn't find any flu, found a heck of a lot of COVID. Um, same kind of guidelines. We're not finding a lot of COVID positives, like fractional. These are folks that have not necessarily been vaccinated. You know, the population here has just kind of gotten down to 65, but even young people, they're getting sick with non-COVID things. And kind of one of the the things that have been hard to quantify are the asymptomatic exposures. I know you shared a story with one of the athletic departments that a lot of people had already had it. Do we have any data to support that? It, you know, maybe a lot of people have already been exposed and have some immunity now. You know, not the, we don't have the kind of data I'd really like to see, but I, I, you know, some of you may have seen Dr. Macri from, uh, from Johns Hopkins wrote a very provocative article in the wall street journal saying, uh, he thinks a lot more of us have been infected uh, than we we are able to really effectively count, and that he thinks we're sort of at herd immunity by April. Now he got a lot of pushback uh, on that and a lot of blowback, but but I actually uh, I I tend to think he may be right, or at least I think that um, we have clusters of populations that were the sort of risk takers, the young bar going crowd, uh, the people that can't physically distance, uh, you know, the people that kind of thought uh, COVID maybe wasn't that important or uh, worry to them and and took risk. And those groups, I think, might be kind of done. I mean, I don't don't say that definitively, but 
as as we mentioned, I you know I work with a group where that have to get tested regularly. That seventy three percent of them have had it now. Seventy three percent, and that's with testing. We don't know how many that you know missed missed it on testing. Maybe you know north of eighty percent. They're probably done that as a group. And uh, you know, in Macri's article, he was uh, estimating that based on some extrapolations you do from numbers of deaths and counted numbers of uh, cases that we may already have uh, in general, somewhere north of 50% of the population uh, possibly having been infected. And I think there may be pockets where that's a lot higher. I, I don't know how North Dakota, uh, where I'm at, which was the literally the worst place in the country in October and November, started precipitously falling in late November, December. Um, yes, we improved our masking. Yes, we improved our distancing. But we're, we're still amongst the worst states for that, you know, with the survey data. I think there has to be more to it uh, than that. Um, and, and, and we were falling even before the Christmas holidays. So uh, there, there's a lot of things going on here. And, and Paul, one thing that you wanted to bring up is the fact that with the deaths, there's actually less percentage of people dying in the hospital who are hospitalized with COVID. You want to elaborate? Yeah, I, I think one of the good news, uh, you know, you, you kind of wanted to focus on the good news. And I think that's a, a, a great thing to be doing because I think there's a lot to be hopeful for and uh, optimistic about. Uh, one of which is, um, you know, when you look at your chances of dying, when you if you were hospitalized with COVID back in March or April of last year, we're in the 20, 25 percent range. We're down now around five to seven percent uh, mortality. Um, so a marked decline in uh, death rates and people who even you know are sick enough to have to be hospitalized with COVID, and that's probably from a couple things. One is that in March and April there were a lot of health systems stressed and stretched, and it's never good to be in a hospital when you've got nurses and doctors maxed out and and. Um, you know, uh, having to deliver care in a very uh, stressful, uh, limited s situation. But we also now have a number of, of treatments uh, available and know a little bit better how to ventilate people and so on. So that I think, you know, there is a true mortality decline with, with interventions that are being done as well. So that's very good news. And as a segue into our second big topic, you know, the first one, the numbers are dropping rapidly. They're not down as low as we want them, but they're going the right direction. And one of those reasons is something we don't hear enough in the news, and that is, John, vaccines work. I mean, we hear so much about the exceptions to what, oh, you can still potentially get the disease and potentially pass it on. Yeah, but the vast majority of the time, you're not. What good news do you think people need to hear more about vaccines? Well, so the, um, the uptake has been great. There's been 116 million, no, sorry, 123 million doses shipped out from the manufacturers out to clinics and pharmacies around the country. 93, 94 million now uh, given and entered into the computer. There's probably a lag, uh, you know, so that, you know, <laughs> sure. the number is, always, you know, always a little bit bigger. Uh, and, and, and that's really good. Um, the up, you know, uh, the, you know, you're seeing, you're still seeing people take selfies. You're still pe people saying they cried when they finally got a chance to get <laughs> vaccinated. Uh, it, it, you know, every every additional person vaccinated makes it harder for the virus to spread. And that's the whole point of uh, getting in line and kvetching about uh, why, you know, why, why isn't my favorite group higher in the uh, higher in the priority list. But, uh, you know, um, kudos to the to all the vaccinators across the country who are you know, putting up with you know, putting up with all the crazy patients and customers, uh, and and getting them protected, and it, 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 it's working. And uh, like I said, the, the nursing home data is is the clearest example of that. Uh, but it's but it'll be true, across, you know, out in the out in the communities as well. It's definitely encouraging to see how many people are legitimately excited to now be, you know, I've heard a lot of people that I've talked to say, okay, now I'm going to allow myself to go out to eat and do these other things. Some of the older folks who really have been staying at home for a whole year. I guess another way of kind of getting at this would be, you know, we're trying to reach people say herd immunity, but basically we get to a place where the virus is not spreading and killing people, whether it be through vaccines or infections. What would we expect the charts to look like when we get there? Do we expect the there to be zero new cases or deaths, or 
Is there some percentage where we'll say, uh, we're, we're there now? Is there an inflection point? What are we looking for? Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a precise number. Paul may uh, may have it in terms of uh, test positivity rates, but the, but the numbers are going to have to go way below uh, where they were even in the spring. And you know, and, and when, when we're at the point where a hospital has a case or two, you know, that's that's going to be you know the 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 slow burn rate. That's going to be we'll be at that level for a long long time. Uh, but I, that's what we're aiming for, where it's just, you know, every now and again, we'll see a, we'll see a patient. It, you know, once a day, we'll see a patient instead of the, the inundation that we've had. Paul? Well, you know, I think this goes one of two ways. Um, I, think it's, it, I think it's quite probable we, we can be uh, with SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, like we are with influenza every year soon. So we don't you know, talk about herd immunity with influenza. We don't talk about eradicating influenza. We know that a number of things about that make it a problem that we face every year. But with vaccination and treatment, you can make influenza a, a pretty manageable disease that um, it does have mortality, but that can be impacted significantly. And we don't shut down schools. We don't limit, you know, bars and restaurants. We don't uh, close down businesses, et cetera, for influenza each year. I think this can look like influenza very, very soon because severe disease and mortality and hospitalizations, I think, are going to be way, way, way down very, very soon. Now, I don't think it's completely uh, out of reach to think about, um, can this, is there any, is there any, John, John may disagree with me on this, but is there any theoretic possibility that we could look at this like the original SARS virus? It's far more contagious, but if it doesn't have a human res, or I'm sorry, if it doesn't have a non-human reservoir, which we don't know yet, is it still circulating in an animal reservoir? But if it doesn't, any, any disease that has only humans as the host are potentially eradicable. And if you hit herd immunity through vaccination and natural infection to where it is not spreading in a community where you have, you drive the reproductive number less than once, just continually, continuously goes down and down and down. Could we see SARS-CoV-2 kind of like hardly visible at all or a thing of the past? I think it's possible. And John, you get down to a very low rate, I think. But remember the goal for polio eradication around the world was for the year 2000. (laughs) <laughs> it's 2021 and we haven't eradicated yeah. polio. So, uh, you know, we're going to, this is going to become a manageable disease. The, the therapeutics will come along. It'll be, you know, even better, but we do have to worry about, we have to keep an eye, keep our eye on the variants that, you know, the South African variant, for example, that, you know, is uh, uh, somewhat more um, uh, dangerous, but, but every person vaccinated uh, uh, reduces the chance that the virus can mutate. And you know, make a northern Manitoba variant, and um, so you know, so, so vaccination of as many people as we can is going to be important. I, I think one of the good news things is I bet John, in your career as a vaccinologist, you've never seen vaccine development like we've seen in the last year. Oh, the the speed, you know, going from. Um, uh, virus identification in January to vaccines in December is unprecedented. Uh, the 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 other interesting thing from my perspective is, you know, the the mRNA vaccines are working. The now we see that the adenovirus vectored vaccines are working. The mechan what the fancy term is the mechanism of action of each of these vaccine types is a little different, and they're all working. Uh, that t- to get that kind of um, uh, variety. Uh, you have to go back to the 1960s and when there were several different kinds of measles vaccine, I, with, only one of which was actually one of which was better than the others. Um, but, you know, from a from a science perspective, innovation, just, you know, met, a clinical uh, medicine perspective, this has been a, a really remarkable accomplishment. I think this is a good point to take a break before we come back to uh, finish this episode on good news about the COVID pandemic here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking primarily about good news related to COVID. Uh, This is your your spot to get good news for COVID if if you don't have enough. I sure don't. And so another good news topic, we've kind of touched on it, started to, we have three vaccines 
been a year. We've got three vaccines that are approved for the use against COVID. But this has not been without confusion. And uh, I guess there's some good news buried in here, a lot of good news, actually. One of the things that has been confusing is that the vaccines are different types and have different relationships to the aborted stem cell lines. And so there was a statement put out uh, recently regarding the origins and the mRNA vaccines being less tainted with that moral issue. Um, describe that for us, Paul, and what how we should interpret that. Okay, sure. So the um, mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, have a very remote connection to the use of aborted fetal cell lines in that some of the experiments that were done at the very early stages of their development to develop the spike protein or to uh, kind of do proof of concept that the uh, mRNA could enter a cell used these cell lines. They are not used in the manufacture of these vaccines. Uh, an issue that came up in some pro-life Catholic circle, circles was whether or not um, they might be using these cell lines for quality control. I actually pursued that with Moderna, got a formal statement from them. They say, not at all. Do not use it in uh, the manufacturer. Do not use it in quality control. Got a kind of less clear statement from Pfizer, but I believe that's probably the case there as well. Um, so a, a very, what we would consider remote connection, but not completely untethered from the use of those cells. The um, the vaccines that use adenovirus vectors, which uh, is the current Johnson & Johnson vaccine, also the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which we don't have um, an emergency use authorization in the U.S. for, but both of those um, are actually grown and manufactured in uh, these cell lines. So that's considered a, a bit more proximate or a bit closer to uh, the use of these cells. And so as such, the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has come out with a statement saying that if one has the choice between receiving these vaccines, um, that Catholics uh, should prefer uh, the more remote connection with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. So, but, but Paul, what, what should somebody do if they show up, they've got their schedule and they don't have the choice and it's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that's ready and waiting for them? What would you do? And what would you advise a family member to do? You know, my advice still, because as John alerted, uh, alluded to earlier in the program, we are not out of this. There are still cases happening. There are still deaths um, that uh, you, you take the first shot you can get in your arm. We are not, uh, the, the church does not ask people to delay or put themselves at, uh, in harm's way or at increased risk to try and get this less uh, proximate uh, connection to um, uh, the vaccines. Um, if, there, if there is a choice, though, and that may be coming soon, the, the vaccines are now being distributed uh, much more quickly. We're seeing them in, in our pharmacies now. Uh, health systems are getting bigger numbers of the vaccines. So you can ask, and I think it's very reasonable to ask. And if you've got that ability to get a choice, then, then exercise it. But if it's limited and there are places where you might only be able to get the Johnson Johnson. I, I, my advice is, especially if you're in a high risk category is take the one you can get, uh, first. Uh, I, John, I agree John do you really, think Janssen or Johnson and Johnson are hearing this and might pay attention to that going forward? Well, um, I, I used the analogy before of the, the, the vaccine manufacturers, uh, took the, the technologies that they had in-house um, that they could most readily put to use when the wolf was growling at the door, figuratively, back last February and April, February and March of 2020, and, you know, and, and, and went off and made vaccines. And, and what, what Janssen, uh, J&J, had in, in their arsenal, in their toolbox, was this uh, adenovirus vectored system that that, that needs for, for me, uh, mechanical purposes, the, these particular cell lines, unfortunately. And so that was the only kind of vaccine that they could credibly have made. It, it succeeded. It prevents uh, serious infection. Um, and, uh, and so if it was the only vaccine we had uh, against COVID, you know, this would be somewhat less of an issue. Um, we're, we're comparing it to other other COVID vaccines and and trying to see which one is uh, 
uh, more or less proximate, more or less close to that uh, 1980-something uh, abortion. Uh, but I, I agree with Paul that uh, you know we the the vaccines are still under centralized allocation. Places don't particularly get to choose which vaccine they receive, and so. Uh, it's going to be probably until the summer or uh, as far as I know, most places only have one brand. They don't have, uh, you know, they don't have, you know, there's there's not a, a choice uh, in most places of or, uh, having two products on, in the same in the same facility. That may change come the summer or the fall, but it's going to be months before that change that situation changes in any substantial way. John, there's a different reason that people are turning down the Janssen vaccine that has nothing to do with morality. And I've had patients tell me, no, no, I'm going to go to the place where I can get an mRNA vaccine, not the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of the, you know, the, the research numbers and the studies. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so the, the folks are uh, sometimes oversimplifying and picking one number to compare um, the, the the vaccines. And, you know, if you're a baseball fan or a football fan, you don't pick one statistic for comparing two players. Uh, I, I read the whole 66-page FDA review of the Janssen vaccine, and you know the number that uh, uh, f- folks tend to focus on is is 66% uh, effectiveness, 66% reduction in moderate to severe disease, but it's an 85% reduction in severe disease just the way the statistics work out. So in my mind, in that 66 pages of, of document, the, the, the number that you should compare is 85% protection against severe disease. Now, you know, that number is 94% for the mRNAs. Um, so, the, you know, so yeah, there's a couple of percentage points um, better, you know, with the mRNAs if you're going to, if you're going to compare the athletes on one statistic. Um, but the the other point is, it, you know, if you have to wait a month to get va- you know, to get your preferred brand, uh, you've got vulnerability for a month, and you can spread the disease to others in that month. And uh, you know, acknowledge. Isn't another point, John, that the the Johnson and Johnson one had to go up against some of these new variants that Moderna and Pfizer didn't? So, isn't that important to bring into the equation? There you go. That's like you know, double A and triple A football. Um, you know, the, the <laughs> Moderna and Pfizer to make the analogies worse. Yes. The, Johnson and Johnson had the luxury, or sorry, Moderna and Pfizer had the luxury of testing their vaccines back when life was simple, when the, when these variants hadn't ori- originated, arisen. And J and J's product was tested in South Africa and in Brazil, where the others weren't, and it came out, you know, with that eighty-five percent number, including the South Africa and the Brazil. Uh, uh, situations. So, you know, other than the uh, remote uh, link to a historic abortion, uh, I, you know, on, on the efficacy side, I would have no hesitation at getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Can I just add, John? Isn't uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it a hundred percent effective against hospitalization and death? That's right. Now, that's zero versus, I think. 10 cases. So the numbers are a little small, but yes, it, the, the, the percentage is hundred percent against hospitalization and death. And what we're concerned about is preventing just those things. It's, we're not too worried about preventing mild disease. We want to prevent hospitalization. If this was just a mild disease virus, we wouldn't be having a pandemic with effects on everybody's lives in the world, right? Precisely. That's right. And that's, we, that, but you know, we are, these last few comments are exactly why I say I have no hesitation with the J and J product on the on the on the clinical performance. And the side. Vatican and the USCCB has said that we may receive the Johnson Johnson vaccine in clear conscience because and of even saying fear. it's an act of charity to take the shot. I think when your turn comes in line, that's actually language that was used by the USCCB and by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith when we do not have a choice with the others. And I, as John uh, just elucidated, I, I think choice is still very limited in many places. But uh, the other, I've heard some people, you know, saying they, they may prefer the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, this isn't something I think for maybe Catholics to do in good conscience, but a lot there are people out there saying the one and done, you know, I just one shot uh, is, is something that appeals to some people. 
But I think the but fact it, that we have, as John said, three vaccines now that are highly efficacious um, and are, are extremely good against the, the thing that we care about most, hospitalization and death, in that short of time is an incredible feat that should be celebrated and shouted from the mountaintops. I mean, this is like um, just huge and, and so exciting, I think, for the, us in the medical world and the public health world. Uh, it's just a tremendous success of science. Now, aren't there two pieces of good news here which will help get vaccines to the vulnerable more easily? Number one, the Pfizer vaccine apparently doesn't have to be in the deep freeze as deep and as long as they thought. Number two, isn't the Johnson & Johnson vaccine easier to get to more vulnerable in places that don't have deep freezers across the world? John, would you comment? Right. So, so both are true. So the Pfizer vaccine can, can tolerate two weeks at normal freezing instead of the ultra freezing. Uh, and th but then the uh, J and J vaccine has the advantage of it being a one dose vaccine. So, you know, back in December and January, people were going to Herculean efforts to get these deep freeze things out to the uh, nursing homes to get the people, you know, get the bulk of the people vaccinated and making a second trip for dose two. Well, now nursing homes keep getting new admissions, and the you know that uh, they can you know they have to go make trips back out, but they can make a single trip and, and, and they don't have to worry some, you know, if they have two or three people to vaccinate, it's a much simpler issue now than, than, uh, you know, because of the easier storage conditions. When do we anticipate that other folks may be able to get the vaccine, such as children, uh, for, for people who want to have their children vaccinated? So, uh, all three companies have, uh, adolescent trials underway now. And uh, they probably will uh, really uh, render results by, oh, let's say June, May or, May or June, probably June. Uh, they are simpler trials. They are simply checking to see whether adolescents and then younger children eventually uh, develop antibodies at the same, um, to the same degree, at the, the same amount uh, as adults do. And that, you know, from looking back at other vaccines, that's almost always true. And so it's just, you know, the, so the probability of success here is very high. It's just a matter of confirming it and in, 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 in establishing the evidence base. But I think uh, by, uh, you, know, you, you know, your high schoolers could be offered vaccine uh, before they go back to classes in the fall. And I think that's highly likely. And, and you know, and the grade schoolers will uh, follow some months after that. I guess a, a follow-up question to that, you know, you had mentioned, John, I think that maybe 94 million doses have been given um, and 120 million have been shipped. There's what some 300 million and plus people in America. At this rate, I know we talked a lot about vaccine distribution last time. When do we expect that anybody who wants a vaccine can be fully vaccinated? Are we looking at this summer? Is it looking more optimistic than before? So, yes. Um, so what's happening is that the manufacturers have now have more track record with their, their production runs, and their production runs are, are beginning to yield uh, higher volumes. They're bringing in more partners. There was just an announcement in the last week about uh, Merck taking on some uh, manufacturing support for J&J. For and and that led Tony, you know, the, the indicator of all or the the result of all this was Tony Fauci saying a week or two ago that every, any adult uh, who uh, should should be able to get a vac there'll, there'll be enough vaccine for every adult. Let's put it that way. Um, I, what did he say? Um, end of May, and uh, so that so the the the, wow. the production per week is rising. Uh, you know, it, it, we're we're in a, we're in a growth curve in terms of uh, production. What? And our states, we're, we're, we're opening up pretty much everything to 1C starting this week, for sure, into next week. That's like all essential workers. That's a huge portion of the population. Um, and they're anticipating that uh, we're going to be uh, making it available to anyone probably sometime in April in, in our state. I mean, it's going way faster than we predicted. And, and here's a case of, um, you know, we, we should talk about the people who think that uh, COVID-19 is a, is a mild disease. <laughs> they obviously have never been in an ICU or, um, you know, seen the, seen the death toll in the, in the nursing homes, but some people think that. And, 
it's important that we get as many adults uh, vaccinated as possible, getting it up into the 80 and the 90 percent level if we can, because that protects the people who didn't respond as well or the people who have heart, you know, kidney transplants and are on immune suppressing drugs and those sorts of things. So this is, you know, we're, we're going to be going into a, a situation where uh, I am my brother's keeper. You are my brother. You are your brother's keeper. And you getting vaccinated, even if you don't think uh, you're particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, will help others. And so there's a there's a there's a, a biblical piece to this of, of doing something to help others. It sounds like an interview we did a few years ago with some some Yahoo who wrote an article about a possible moral duty to vaccinate. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Dr. Carson? I, I think I would have. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great article you and Tony Flood wrote uh, on that. Uh, there was an article that came out from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science that said that vaccinating the oldest first against COVID-19 saves both the most lives and the most years of life. And so now many states are vaccinating primarily by dropping the age. Here in Indiana, uh, a week ago, what was it? On March 2nd, they went down to age 55 and March 3rd down to age 50. What do you think of that approach, Paul? Yeah. So, you know, when you, you shared that article with me earlier and, and that I think was a little counterintuitive, we sort of think, uh, you know, vaccinating sort of younger populations is going to get you the most, what we call years of potential life saved. But because this affects the elderly so much more, um, that the mortality rates are so much higher uh, each decade uh, you go up, um, I guess maybe it's not that surprising that really targeting uh, the, the elderly uh, gets you the most gains. So I, I'm not sure what you're, you're saying by they're going down into the, you know, by age group in your state, or is that how they, they set the, the rankings kind of, they forgot about all the other comorbidities, comorbidities and just sort of went by age. And Once they hit age 50, that's when they started going to comorbidities. It wasn't before that, which is what, you know, some of the earlier recommendations were. And it seems like many states are going strictly by age do you think that's wise or not? That's basically what I'm asking. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard smarter people than me debating this all round and round. I, I think a lot of people felt have felt that that's cleaner. It makes sense. Um, it's more easy to administer. For example, when you say comorbidity of cancer, uh, um, well, uh, you take off skin cancers all day long. Is that the same thing as a lymphoma? No, yeah. uh, those are very, yeah. very different, but that all falls in the same bucket. Um, I think, and, and then how do you validate, you know, wh what did you have? What kind of comorbidities do you have? Nobody's doing that kind of cross-checking. I think you can make a strong case for just going by the age group, but I'm, I'm not the smartest uh, person in the room to kind of, you know, tell how to do that. John uh, probably has some thoughts think? on that. Yeah, so it was, it was angels dancing on the head of a pen. It was 4951 kinds of decisions about, you know, this diagnosis or that diagnosis and the pragmatics of just, Show me your driver's license so I can check your age. It just moved people through the line faster and it was considered more equitable. So, um, you know, less line jumping and that sort of thing. So, I, I, you know, all the, you know, the, the, the pragmatics, uh, I think, carried the day here. Sure. It was simpler. The, the biggest good news I think most people want is lives returning to what we consider as normal. You know, we we talked a little bit about uh, Dr. Martin Macquery, McCary, I'm not sure how you say it, but, he, you know, th there was an Atlantic Monthly editorial that actually somewhat agreed with him. So the, the question is, getting back to normal, once somebody is vaccinated, what can they do differently, Paul? Well, you know, we just uh, two days ago, I, I think, uh, or no, maybe it was just yesterday, uh, the, the CDC issued new guidance on this. Um, which I think was a great start. Uh, and what they've said is what's what's changed if you've been vaccinated is that you can now gather indoors with fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask. So that's kind of nice. Uh, I've got a lot of friends that have been vaccinated. I, we've wanted to have dinner parties. We've wanted to, you know, have some of our church related functions uh, and get togethers. And uh, we're going to be doing that. And uh, they went a step further and said, <clears throat> If you've got a family that's vaccinated, it's probably okay to have a family or a, a members of the same household that's unvaccinated get together because that unvaccinated group is already cohorting together. 
the vaccinated people are protected and probably probably pretty unlikely to pass something along to the um, unvaccinated people, which gets to a question that we had in the past is, can you carry the virus if you've been vaccinated? Can you transmit the virus? You've been vaccinated. And if we have time, we can get into that. But the data is starting to come in to suggest that goes way down as well. So we're getting some encouraging uh, news there. So um, that's a that's a good start. Um, they're they're not saying we can kind of, uh, you know, go have um, big group gatherings and not wear masks and not distance anymore. We're not there yet, you know, in, in a more general sense. What do you think, John? Would you like to add to that? Yeah. Uh, when you asked me this question, I, I went at it the opposite way. Where is where is the majority of the risk? And um, I think the, the, the most hazardous thing is when lots of households uh, come together. So, you know, the, you, know, you, you and your next door neighbor, you're all vaccinated. That's fine. Um, but, but if, it, you know, church or mass is many households coming into one building. Uh, oh, a building, uh, indoor versus outdoor in ventilation. So it, an indoor activity is more risky than an outdoor activity where you've got wind and, and, you know, maybe ultraviolet light and that sort of thing. And then you've got masking and distance. And so maybe you, uh, you know, you unblock the marked off pews and, and you fill it up a little bit more, but everybody stay, keeps their mask on. The mask stops droplets from, from you know, when you cough, sing, speak. You sent. You can't see them necessarily, but you're you're sending out little droplets, and there's virus. There can be virus in those little droplets, and so those are you know the way I look at risk. And and um, I I'm not ready to uh, the the case counts are still too high for me. Uh, you need to be looking at the test positivity rates being low and other things before we start changing um, the, 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 the um, uh, behaviors at, at mass. I'm, I'm still, uh, regrettably, I'm still uh, watching online. And, you know, so I, I, my, my wife has a, a, a set of comorbidities. And I, I'm just not willing to run the risk of, of bringing virus back into the house to her. So, um, uh, you know, that's the way I'm approaching. I think this is a good point. Uh, where we have to end the radio show, but we're going to stay on and go into our third main topic about how life is gradually going to return to normal as we're getting the vaccine, what we can expect. John and Paul, thanks for being back with us on Dr. Doctor, and God bless you. And we're back. And not only do we have the good news about COVID, but we have the answer to the trivia question that people have been waiting for which not surprisingly is good news. Yes, good news about <laughs> asthma. Is it a risk factor? Well, in this study with 562 asthma patients compared to 2,600 non-asthma patients, all with COVID, the risk for hospitalization was the same. The risk for ventilation and getting a tube to breathe was no different. And the risk for death was only 30% for those with asthma compared to those without. So right now, there's no reason to think that asthma uh, is a risk factor. In fact, there was another meta-analysis of like over 100 studies that show the same thing. At least for if your asthma is controlled, there's no greater risk for hospitalization or death uh, and uh, might even be a lower risk. So that's good news. Yes, and now- We've had a lot, a lot of good news here. Yeah, so yeah, what's our top three takeaways, Andrew? Well, I guess, you know, the biggest takeaway- is that if you haven't been vaccinated and you can be vaccinated, please go and do it. Not only is it an act of charity, but it's it's also incredibly safe. I'm not sure we have this kind of data about any any vaccines. We had 94 million doses given. I mean, that's that's incredible. Do that many people have cell phones? I don't know. I mean, that's <laughs> a lot of people. So number one, go take the shot. Um, Number two, we are not out of this yet. I, I appreciate Dr. Gravenstein for making that point. In spite of all the good news, we are not out of this yet. It, it's sure looking promising, and I'm going to be the first one uh, to take my mask off as soon as it's safe. But uh, stay strong with the, the recommendations that the local authorities are giving, and hopefully things will get better soon. I guess my, my last takeaway 
would be just to continue praying for everybody affected by COVID. I, I know one of the things we've talked about, Tom, off air is trying to get maybe COVID patients, maybe a survivor story. And so we'll we'll see if we can bring something like that to you in the future. But pray for the medical professionals, pray for the people affected, do your part taking the shot, and uh, hopefully we'll be out of this before you know it. Thanks be to God. And a reminder, if you're interested in learning about Jesus, his suffering, and how your suffering can be better, you can purchase What Christ Suffered at Amazon.com. May you all have a blessed and holy Lent. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We ask you, please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Ask them to listen. They can do it on their favorite podcast app if they miss it on EWTN Radio. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. You can also find all of our old episodes, even, believe it or not, we do stuff besides COVID. Uh, That's on our website, drdoctor.org. We've got something on many medical topics. So check that out and be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with us at Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.